This week on the Dragzine Podcast, I'm joined by shock nerd Mark Mincer to talk about all things shock-related, the rise of radio tire racing, and how to make a drag car stupid fast. So, pull those belts tight. Get ready to put it in the beams. The Dragzine Podcast starts now. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor Brian Wagner. This week on the show, Mark Mincer joins us and really unloads a lot of interesting tidbits and knowledge about drag racing in general, kind of the the little fun bits about how these cars actually go fast and the changes you have to make to really make it happen. So it's a really cool tech piece slash learn a little bit and have some fun show. So uh, really looking forward to it. So uh, without further ado, let's get this drag racing party started. All right, my guest this week on the Dragzine podcast is the magical wizard of all things dampening related, Mr. Mark Mentzer. What's going on, Mark? I was just trying to get our stuff together and get ready for the big race up at VMP. We're heading out in the morning to go to the Shakedown Nationals, and um, yeah, it's chaos as usual uh, the day before a big event like that. Yeah, it's like... This year is, yeah, chaos. I think that's the best way to describe 2020. And right now, the end of the season is pretty much playing out like almost how I think a lot of us wished it would. But now that it's here, we're like, oh, God, that it's just, you know, everything's happening here within, you know, basically the span of two and a half months. You've got some of the biggest races of the year across the board being crammed into 90 days. In, indeed, yeah. It's, it's um, we spent the whole summer uh, and the spring, you know, just sort of in this suspended animation, like purgatory or something, you know. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, we've been let loose, and it's it's uh, there's a race going on, races on top of each other. Um, they're scheduling nightmares, trying to get personnel and parts and pieces in place. So it's uh, it's extremely exciting and crazy stressful all at the same time yeah it's it's a lot like i I explain to people you know wheelies are fun for everybody that has to work on the car or pay for the car and this situation is fun for the fans because they get to have all this awesome racing and then those of us that are actually in the industry are just like where do i even start you just you literally have to take your plan throw it out the window and just run around and do your best yeah, and it, and it's been such a um, it's been such a kind of a, a hodgepodge too with the scheduling. And I don't, you can't blame the sanctioning bodies or the promoters. They're just trying to get their races in and honor their commitments to their sponsors. Um, and so it, it, but it's just it's so difficult, you know, for everybody to try to make decisions. And now you have, um, I'm already hearing talk from from some of the like radio versus the world teams and stuff that they're having to think about where they're going to race and what they're going to do because the stuff is on top of each other so much. They don't think that they can have enough parts to make all these events. You know, like if you race shakedown, do you have enough stuff left over to go run sweet 16 plus no mercy? I mean, you know, two weeks of duck. uh, I don't know if anybody in the world owns enough parts to do that. Think about that for a second. You know, the typical Sweet 16, those guys are basically hot-lapping cars that are not meant to be hot-lapped. And if that event has taught us anything, is that guys will burn everything they own to the ground spare parts-wise to make it happen. And then usually it's a little bit of downtime, you know, and then you can get ready for other events. A lot of these dudes are just going to be living, leaving their rigs parked there and getting ready to do it within a couple of days. Yeah, it's gonna. I think there's gonna be some strategy that plays into that. Um, you know, like I, maybe they're not gonna be able to lay it all on the table for Sweet 16, or maybe maybe they go in there um, geared up for Sweet 16 and go after the big money, and then if they got enough parts left over, they race the other thing, and if if they don't, then they uh, they hang around and spectate or they go home. Yeah, Who knows? Um, it's gonna be interesting. Yeah, it, it's definitely going to be very, very interesting to see the strategy that guys play into this and who does what. And I think it's going to be interesting, at least from my point of view, and get your thoughts on this. Do you think we're going to maybe see some guys in Radio vs. the World X275 and Pro 275 that are going to be players that, you know, they're not necessarily, I'm not going to say they aren't players or in the hunt to win, but they're going to be given an extra opportunity because, you know, People are going to be out of equipment or they can't run as hard as what they normally do. and They're going to be shown to be kind of mortal. Well, 
I say that anybody who can do the next three events in either one of those classes that's capable of sustaining an an ET in the upper third of the field, but can do it consistently week after week after week without tearing their equipment up, that guy's going to make a lot of money. He's going to he's going to win a bunch of money uh, between now and November because you're exactly right. The guys that go in there um, that have to lean on their stuff really hard to be in position to run those ETs, they may not have the parts or the the reliability that they need to sustain that kind of effort. Now, you can pull it off for one weekend, but can you do it for a month straight? And that's a big question, and a lot of those programs are going to find out what, what the answer is. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're going to find out several things, one of which being who is willing to go into the most debt or spend their own personal wealth to win you know a portion back of because you know let's be honest here you don't go into the racing world to uh is a racer to make a fortune you go into the to the racing world to burn a fortune so you've got those guys that might have the money to do it but i really think you're going to see the teams that are able to be very that race smart are going to shine more than the teams that just you know turn it up to 11 and let it eat Oh, I agree, hundred percent. It's it, it'll. There's definitely going to be some budgeting of parts, budgeting of resources, um, and and human capital too. I mean, you can't just race yourself to death. Uh, you've got to, you know, you got to stay sharp because there is a fatigue involved. If you go to to South Georgia and you stay there for two weeks, uh, and you're in the finals and you're worn out because you haven't slept because you've been swapping engines, you know, the the likelihood of you making a bad decision goes up uh the more exhausted you are so you know you gotta pace yourself there you can't just run everything out all in one shot and you know so to speak yeah and i think that that really kind of plays into the fact that you know a lot of people that aren't you know the casual fan might not understand the level of strategy and what goes into running one of these cars because i can tell you firsthand wrenching on a car all night and then having to get up super early to make a round call sucks and you make mistakes it happens it, and it, the small it might be you might be lucky it might be a simple small mistake or it could be something that ends up with you know a crank laying on the ground it's not a good situation no it's a, and it's exhausting so it, it's going to be very cool to to be a part of it um it's going to be hectic and it's going to be super interesting to watch how it plays out i think that this uh you know, we, we see this with all the sanctioning bodies, with NHRA, um, with with uh, all all the series. You know, kind of having to run a a shortened schedule um, and a lot of uh, scheduling conflicts and all that sort of stuff. You'll see the the teams that really are well organized, um, that know how to race, are going to rise to the top and they're going to be successful. And the and the less organized teams or the teams with less resources. Um, you know, they're going to fall by the wayside. It's, it's already happening now. You see it taking place. So, uh, it's just going to get, it's just going to be more, uh, more hectic as the year plays out. You know, the, the desperation is going to come out. We're going to see who's, what they're made of. And, you know, I think another thing we take into, you know, we got to take into account this year is just across the board, even with all of this insanity going on people are still throwing up monster numbers, monster passes, and we're seeing records reset. To me, that's like, it's like the the racing world kind of never skipped a beat, but at the same time, you know, guys are really having to, like, work at it to, to lay down these passes. Yeah, it's, well, you know, there's some interesting things that took place. Um, one of the things was early on with the, with the pandemic, when things kind of stopped, we saw a few teams that were in a good position to go out and take advantage of that downtime and do an awful lot of testing. And they went out and worked on their stuff. And when it came time to race, you could, it was like, you could just see the guys, you know, it was clear as a day who went out and who tested, who put that time in and who had the resources to go work on their program. And then you could see the other teams that were, that, that just had to shut down and wait. Um, because the performance difference between the two was night and day. And it played out uh, through every series um, at the beginning of the year when all everybody finally got back to racing, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something that that I noticed, and you see a lot of these teams too. That the ones that have the ability to quickly capitalize on knowledge gained, and I think in you know pretty much any form of drag racing, you know, anything from you know bracket racing all the way up to you know the nitro classes, is that you can buy the most expensive exotic parts on earth but you cannot buy the knowledge to use them all the time. I mean, you, you might be able to buy a good tuner, but it's being able to put it all together, I think, is that's what you also see with these teams. Well, and so much of that um, translates to uh, to what's going on with with testing. You know, that's I saw so many teams that um, that figured out ways to work around the uh, – the pandemic rules, you know, well, we're not going to be racing, but we can have testing. And, and there were guys that were literally at the racetrack somewhere, everywhere that it, that the doors open. Um, I think Clint Satterfield and uh, Bob Gardner, the NHRA team, they're, they're a great example of that. Those guys um, took that pandemic time and lived like gypsies. They stayed in the motorhome on the road and everywhere there was a racetrack open, they were making laps. And and you can see it in their performance. You know they're out leading the points in uh, Midwest Pro Mod. They're um, qualifying well and running well at NHRA. They made a huge improvement over the winter in their program because they took advantage of all of this uh, off time to to stay at some racetrack somewhere and make laps. That right there is that needs to be cut out. I need to cut that out, record it, and put it on a loop. So people who complain about rules will understand what it takes to go fast. Testing. Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. It's uh, I've worked with a bunch of teams over the the pandemic shutdown, and and um, there were racetracks open. There were places where the rules were more relaxed. There were situations that that made themselves available, and. And the, the guys with resources or with the heart to go do it, um, they got out there and they ran the crap out of their stuff, man. They they burn up parks until they figured out how to go fast. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's definitely you see that. And then the thing that that I always kind of find interesting too is you got the guys that were broadcasting that they were testing. And then you got the guys that necessarily might not have been broadcasting. And that's, again, is kind of shows itself as well. It's like, oh, where'd that person, how'd they get so good? Well, no, they were probably testing and just didn't feel the need to tell the world about it. Well, some, sometimes it's better to keep that stuff quiet. There's, there's times when it's a good idea to brag about what you're doing. And then there's times when it's a good idea to keep your mouth shut. Um, and, and all of that, again, kind of circles back around the strategy uh the most powerful tool that you have in your racing program is your brain and if you can if you can play strategy that that will get you living rent free in your competition's head and you can use up some of their brain power worrying about what you're doing you have an immediate advantage every time you roll into the water against them Oh yeah, one hundred and ten percent fact right there. That there, you, you take people out of their ability to do what they need to do, and that's again something that translates across all forms of drag racing. You'll see bracket racers try to play games at the starting line. You know, you just you see that across the board, and you can see where it definitely affects some people more than others. Yeah, yeah. That well, you know, I I talk about uh, race car drivers all the time, and the ones that the ones that are really good. Um, they all have that one thing in common, and that's that they never get rattled. You know, I've raced with so many guys over the years, and there are guys that are talented that can cut a light, that can wheel a race car, but they are not good under pressure. And then you've got those guys like Stevie Jackson or Kevin Fiscus over the years, um, Todd Sutterow. So I mean, when the chips are down and they have to lay it all on the line, they can go trip zip on the tree. They can get the car through tire shake. They can do whatever it takes to get to the other end first. And and that's just something you can't teach it. You can't buy it. You can't read it out of a book. You're either born with that or you're not. Well, yeah, it's the same thing you see guys that are good when, you know, something something bad happens. You know, there's a, a slight yep. hiccup. 
you know, with the car in the, you know, water box, you know, just something like that. And some guys are just, you know, they're belted in the car. And I think it comes down to the confidence you have in your crew. They're just like, all right, just fix it. I'm going to sit here and do my thing. And then I'm just going to do what I got to do. There's no, they understand that them getting riled up will do nothing but harm. Yep. Well, my, my friend Billy Stockland and I, we talk about, um, about the, the tuners, you know, the uh, crew chiefs and all that sort of stuff. And we have a phrase um, for, for those guys, too. We call it situational tuning. Uh, it's, it's sort of our joke about being able to come up with the quickest, fastest, dirtiest solution to solve a problem and win around. Um, and there are guys that are great under pressure at figuring that out and making the call and getting the car to the other end of the racetrack first. And then there are guys that, in a testing situation or in a perfect world, they may outrun you. Uh, they may be better than you, but when, when things go haywire, they might not perform under pressure the same way. So, you know, that, that deal translates through the entire racing team. The, the crew member that can get in there and thrash that thing back together when you've just broken apart and you're on a 45-minute turnaround um, and do it right and everything fires up clean and you don't have a problem. You know that everybody's got to be able to operate under pressure, um, and it's some are good at it and some just aren't. I think I bet you know, get your take on this. Do you think if you pull most crew chiefs that they would be more worried about running a team that's capable of hitting the home run ball, or is it the team that always seems to get down the track that worries them that puts the extra pressure on them? That, that's kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, we All of us race against somebody that we know is not consistent, but that thing is a loaded gun. Like, it could go off at any minute and lay down a number. Um, but, but those things, I think that that team factors way less into your strategy than the guy that's going down the racetrack every time. That, that's the hardest guy to beat at the racetrack. If he's in that upper third of the ET bracket, uh, you know, ET range for the class, and he's consistent, that, that's a guy that's in your head all the time. You're constant. You know, you cannot make any mistakes. You know, you don't have enough room in the tune-up for your driver to cut a bad light. You don't have enough room to go out there and spin the tire or rattle the tire. You can't have to pedal that thing. You know, you have zero room for error when you're racing against that that guy that's going down the racetrack consistently every time. Oh, yeah, that's th – there are teams, I think, that they could probably go faster if they really wanted to push it, but they have found that they realize that that place to live is right inside that zone because I, if you look at it, that's the money round. That's where you want to be because you're going to make – you're going to be in the position to win more money and win more rounds in that position than – you know, records usually don't pay, you know, don't pay as much as a race win. Running a big number is only useful in the last round of qualifying when you're already number one and you want to like break everybody's spirit. You know, when you want to when you want to intimidate your competition or get in their head, there's a time and a place to run that big number just to scare them into making a mistake on Sunday morning. Um, but but it doesn't pay a nickel to be the fastest guy at the racetrack if you can't get to the other end of the racetrack first every round on Sunday. You know, kind of going off of that, the, the, the big number stuff, I think a lot of teams have now learned to use that just for strictly, like, data purposes so they can find out where the edge is so they can backfill yeah. if that makes sense on how to, like, make more consistent fast passes. Now, in your world... What does that look like from, you know, building suspension, you know, dampeners and shocks and stuff like that? You know, how do you use that data? What do you look at? So so we'll take our fastest runs and we'll know that that as we come back from that and start to slow the car down, uh, that less power and less torque means that we are naturally going to use a little less damping force. And it, so it, it kind of helps us to develop a window to operate in. We know what the lower limit of our damping force needs to be um, and what our adjustments and weight packages are to run slower ETs, and then we know what it takes to go fast. So extrapolating in between then 
becomes much easier. You're way less likely to to make a mistake and put too much weight on the nose of the car or tighten up too much or, or make too much of a change if you've already been to the edge of that and you know how fast you can go. Like, all right, I can run a, a 365 with three pucks on the nose. I know I should be able to run a 368 with two to three pucks on the nose, but I don't need any more weight on there to go that fast. So I'm less likely to make that mistake um, than, than I would be if I just didn't have that data. If I'd never been out there in that range, um, you know, I, I can easily make a mistake because I have no idea where the edge is. It's easy to step off of it. And what I find so fascinating about, you know, any drag racing vehicle, but especially the heads-up cars, is just how, like, scientific you have to be with the adjustments because it can't just be like oh, let's throw a couple pounds on it and see what it does that's that's not a good way to figure out how to make something work is it no it's it's not um at the beginning when you you know when you first start off with a car and you don't have any data you have to use information from other cars that are similar and and what we've done now that i think we're pretty good at is we've We've kind of standardized those weight packages and converter and gear ratio and all that sort of stuff. But but when you get one going and you're in a position where you're you're in competition, um, you're you're analyzing tiny little things in the shock that you're looking at shock velocity or the rate of rise uh, of the front end, and you're making extremely precise adjustments, trying to. Maybe you just want to move an event around. You know, I have an event that's occurring at the same time as a gear change that the front strut pops out. Um, and I just want to move these things apart some tiny amount, maybe only two or three-tenths of a second. So you're only working with a window of two or three-tenths of a second. Um, and so you've got your dyno information on your struts or you know what you're doing with your weight, and you make a small adjustment of one or two clicks and two or three pounds and it and it moves that that event out two or three tenths of a second past that gear change, and it smooths that area out. So that's that's the, the kind of adjustments that we're making now. We're so precise that we're we're literally trying to move events around by a tenth of a second. It's very very precise. And that's what's interesting is when you look at these cars and everything that happens so fast during one of these runs and the technology and how it's changed and you know you now have these what the, like duck calls them with the 12 speed transmissions going down the track it, it's all these <laughs> different changes that when a new technological innovation comes out you're like that's going to be awesome oh great now i have to rethink x y and z to make it all work right yeah now i have to learn how to run the car all over again um and it's amazing how just the slightest little change, you know, we'll go back to that example of moving that, all right, so when the front strut tops out, uh, if that overlays with uh, a gear change or if that sits on top of a nitrous kit turning on or your timing around, uh, you know, your, your launch retard terminating um, and the, the engine coming back into full power, whatever the case may be, you have different options for that. Like, you can look at the front ride height sensor and say, well, is this thing carrying the front end? If it's not, maybe you loosen up that travel limiter and you just leave the rate of rise the same in the front end, but you you give it more travel, which, in essence, uses more time then. So, you know, you can do that or you can slow the strut down. But what if we change the rate of rise and then we upset the weight transfer and we take some percentage of traction away from the rear tires and then we, we, we lose grip and we spin the tire there? So... Now you've got, you've got two or three or five or ten different ways to achieve the same thing. Um, and ultimately, what you have to go on is data from the previous runs that you've made where you've tried one or the other, and you have to, to make a decision based on which one was a more successful approach to, to fixing that problem. And after you have all that figured out, oh, by the way, you also have to take into account what the track's doing. <laughs> <laughs> right right we did this before but we did it on a track that was 95 degrees and now the track's 135 degrees so we don't have data for that so we have to go out there and make an educated guess 
and we have some percentage of chance that it's going to go down the racetrack and some percentage that it's not. And if we get lucky, we learn from it uh, and make it down the racetrack. And if we're unlucky, we learn from it and we don't make it down the racetrack. What Either is, way, we learn from it if we're smart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Stop trying to put the square peg in the round hole, right? Yep. One of the things I think that really illustrates that, and I've like again, once you start to really pay attention, you'll notice stuff like this. Um, you'll see it in you know anything from a nitro funny car down to even like an X two seventy five car, is that you'll see it like, oh man, this thing's on a pass, and then all of a sudden it's not. And it's because probably I'm guessing one of those events was out of sequence or something didn't happen as planned. And you're on that edge of like, everything's going perfectly fine to nope, it's not going to do what you want it to do. Well, you know, we're asking these things to perform at the very outer edge of the envelope. Um, so if, if you've made the perfect run in drag racing, uh, if there is such a thing, the perfect run in those conditions at that moment in time cannot be bested. There's no more available traction. There's no more available power. There's no room for error. So, you know, when you're operating in a margin that's so tiny, um, the, the least little thing can upset the car, you know. We, you know, one drop or two drops of water under the tire on the starting line um, from condensation out of one of the, the you know, wastegates. Um, that's enough. You spent you spun the tire. There was no extra room in that equation for that amount of traction to not be there. I mean, that's how close these things are to the edge. And I, I think that what what really kind of tells the tale is when a pass looks like it's uneventful, but it's really fast. Because if something like I've always kind of given the eye test of if it looks like it's really fast, then it might not necessarily be because it's it's over dramatic. Whereas a run where the cars, you know, just barely, you know, lift those wheels just have enough tension where they're just on the track and it just powers right through it. That's when, you know, it's on a run. Yes, nothing, there was no wasted motion there. Um, when you're looking at data and you're trying to figure out what's going on, you want to make the car fast. Like the, the first thing to do is to make everything smooth. Because you can take any run out of your data uh, set from any pass that you made anywhere at any racetrack, um, and if you will take that exact same tune-up and that exact same run and just work on smoothing out all the bumps and the humps in the G meter and making it as smooth as you can humanly make it, it will go faster. I promise you. Smoothness is, is the most underrated thing in drag racing. Um, we, we have a natural tendency as drag racers to want to turn a lot of stuff on and make big things happen. We got huge power. Um, so, so the idea is that we want to just cram it all in there as fast as we can and get this thing going. Um, and the reality is, is that if you can make it smooth, it's almost always going to be faster. Oh yeah. It's like the reason why people, people have this misconception, like, you know, with the Davis boxes, that those are somehow these like magical video game tools that you just, you place them in the car and it's instantly fast. It's a data tool. But it's a very dangerous data tool if you don't know what you're doing because you could actually make yourself slower by not understanding the data and the tools that you're using. That's right. The, yeah, and it, that always comes back around. I, I get the call about that all the time. And, and um, Shannon Davis is, has a wonderful product uh, and some of the best technology in the sport, hands down. Um, but it's a tool. And it, it's only as good as the user. So if you don't understand it or if you haven't been properly trained or you're not um, asking the right questions when you call for technical support, you know, you can do a whole lot more harm than good if you don't know how to operate those tools. Oh, yeah. It's like giving a monkey a fully automatic weapon. It's not going to end very well. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, you know, again, it comes down to just being able to watch those runs, and it's like, you know, you can tell when guys have, like, you know, some some of the wheelie control engaged with an ECU or something like that because all of a sudden you see one of that car wanting to go up, and then it's just like they, they pulled the e-brake cable, and that nose comes back down. And that just basically scrubs everything that you learned from 
up until that very point in the run, everything after is not going to really help you. That's right. And and the guys that have learned how to use those tools, they also know when to use it and when not to. You know, you don't the traction control and the and the wheelie control and all that stuff, those are those are wonderful tools on race day. They might not be the tool that you need when you go out to test to learn how to go faster. Um, you know, and that gets back to a whole other thing about testing. Like when you go to test, you should be testing. You shouldn't be out there just repeating laps and, and plugging in known tune-ups and just going up and down the racetrack. I've gone and tested with so many customers that spin the tires or do a wheelie and then change everything back to what they already know and go out there and repeat that same stuff over and over, then they call that testing. Well, you're not learning anything. You're just repeating the same behavior. You really should have taken that stuff that spun the tires or did a wheelie and figured out how to not do that and go faster. That would be testing. Oh, yeah, that's 110%. You got to figure, you know, you you go back through and you pull the data, you look at it and be like, you have to ask the question, why did it do this? You see, your circle track guys and your road race guys, they, their situation is a little different. If they go to the racetrack with something unknown, they have to muscle through that stuff and go run a 50-lap feature or a six-hour endurance race or a time attack. Um, and, and they have a lot of laps with it and a lot of information to go with to try to improve it. Uh, drag racers are notorious about trying something new, and if it doesn't go set a world record the first time they let go of the button, like they take it off the car and file it away in a big pile of wasted money with all the other stuff that they bought that was supposed to be magic. Yeah. They, they, they don't take the, you don't that, that's the big mistake people make is they don't take the time to figure figure it out you know play with it you know try something that's out of left field to see if you can make it work right yeah and if it's you know if it shows some potential maybe it's not the thing you leave on there for race day on sunday maybe you take that part off and you race the car with what you know but by god the next time you go test that thing um you put those parts back on the car and you start figuring it out if it shows potential it's it's almost always worth investigating, even though you may have to slow down to to eventually get faster. Speaking of getting faster, I've got a couple questions I want to throw at you that are, I think they're going to be interesting to hear your your take on it because of how like with what you do and what you test with how you know global it is with the car. We'll start with you know of course the big the big hot thing is you know radial tire racing's been you know really hot for how many years now now what do you think has been the biggest thing that has really pushed radial racing to this point where we're seeing people running you know ridiculous numbers on a radial tire you know we're almost in the 340s now when we were in you know four o's a couple years ago was magical what's been the thing that's pushed it you know this many tents so fast the very first event um you can you can blame pooch over at vp um, you know, he was the first guy to show up and just like kick a drum of glue over on the racetrack and squeegee it in and give, give them guys a really sticky racetrack to race on. Damn it, Pooch. Um, the radial tire is incredible, but it requires a certain type of racetrack preparation. And we all know this. Um, well, you know, Jason, he started a trend and then you had these guys that followed behind, you know, the Tyler Crossnose and the, um, you know, uh, Kurt at Total Venue Concepts and Jimmy Bradshaw, and now you have all these these track prep gurus that are traveling around like freelance, and they'll show up and make your racetrack awesome. Um, and so there's been this sort of dissemination of information out there about how to prep a racetrack for radials. Um, and that, you know, the first thing was to give these cars the type of surface that they needed. And by doing that, it let all of us in the manufacturing and um, performance side of things kind of develop our parts to go along with that. You know, the torque converters got better, and then we were able to use more power, and then we made better shocks, and we learned how to set the cars up. And then that, that leapfrogged back to the torque converters, and then the transmission guys, and then the, the, the engine guys, and then the chassis guys were, you know, let's put all this stuff in a pro mod or, or whatever and try it and let's make them lighter. I mean, it's just all this stuff has happened 
in a series of sort of leapfrog events where the one technology leapfrogs over the other and opens the door um, for the next, you know, big improvement or major innovation. But it all started with, you know, Jason at VP realizing that, hey, if you want to make radials go fast, the first thing you got to do is give them some glue to run on. So that's my opinion. And I think that is 100% valid. And let's follow that up with an interesting question. Let's say Pooch just sticks to making music and we take him out of the equation of, you know, kicking that barrel of glue over. And we don't see these radio-specific track preps. What do you think, would the radio versus the world kind of deal, would it be more, would it be less of radio versus the wallet and more of tuner versus tuner? Well, I think it stays more um, the way that small power racing was in the Orska days, and it stays much more um, uh, along the lines of what you see um, with, like, limited drag radial and uh, X275, you know, the classes where I, I just think that, that it stays old-school ODR uh, without, without, that, without that one catalyst sort of starting the whole change that, that – brought about the evolution of the sport you know it, i think it just stays old school odr and um you know it stays in that four four thirties four twenties bracket and it, it's hard to to get those cars to go much faster unless we have some glue that leads to performance in in uh innovation and then you know all the you know the class is faster so let's change the rules and let's let more power adders in and let's you know, just and then the money. You know, you heap hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in purses on top of this, and the smart guys and the guys who have some resources, they're going to show up. It's like the field of dreams. You build it, and they will come. You put enough money out there, they're going to figure out how to go fast. Oh yeah, look at no prep racing. You know, they. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> the, you know, you you've. It's still popular, but you're not seeing as many giant pot races anymore just for the simple fact that, as predicted, the Sharks came into the pool and they did a lot of gobbling. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you didn't didn't think you were going to get away with that for very long. You can't put that kind of money out there. No. I mean, if you put enough money in Radio versus the World uh, before it's all over with, you know, some NASCAR guy will be over there doing it. You can't dangle that carrot for, but for so long before everybody gets there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And kind of going off of that, you know, with slick tire racing and, you know, we'll look at pro mod because I think outside of nitro racing, you know, we'll, we'll exclude nitro and pro stock for the, you know, NHRA level stuff for the most part. What's been the thing that's really pushed, you know, really fast door car, you know, racing on slicks like pro mod. What's, what's been the, the thing that's made that so crazy these days? Well, I think honestly, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit biased because I came from the small tire racing. Um, but I, I think that in a lot of ways, there's been a huge bleed over of technology and innovation that started with the radial cars that made its way over there. There used to be this this wall between the two types of racing. You know, the pro mod guys and the small tire guys were never on the same property. They didn't really have a lot to do with each other. Um, the, the influx of money and big purses and the involvement of, you know, world-class top-notch tuners um, – sort of allowed that information to, to spill over into every facet of drag racing. You know, I mean, if you look at some of the, the most innovative door car racers, you know, I, I'll, I'll bring his name up again. Last year's NHRA world champion and pro mod is Stevie Fast Jackson, the most notorious grudge racer, small tire, radial smack talker in the history of the sport. You know, I don't think that's an accident. I think that he learned so much about racing a car and about tuning and about power management and chassis and all these other things. Um, and he was able to take all of that, those years of experience racing on a little tire in less than optimal conditions and go over there and be extremely successful with big tires. Oh, yeah, that, that completely makes sense. And it comes back to that point about, 
you know, the, the dissemination of knowledge that these tuners and everybody's learn. And again, someone like a Billy Stockland's going to look at something of a, wait a second that worked here. Let's change a couple things and I'm willing to bet it's going to go fast here and whammo. There you have it. Yeah. And, and Billy Stockland is flat out scary. That guy can process information and come to conclusions uh, and, and put them to work on a race car faster than just about anybody I've ever seen in my life. He's just fantastic at that. It goes back to that, that situational tuning. Billy can take a set of circumstances and do the math in his head. You know, he's a math genius and figure out what the solution is. And he's going to beat you nine out of 10 times that you go to the starting line against him. Yeah. It's one of those deals where you, you don't want him to get too many looks at the track, even on a bad weekend, because he's going to figure it out. And it's just a matter of when and how fast. That's exactly right. Absolutely. You know, you put him in that category with those, you know, the Steve Petty's and the Jamie Miller's and the, you know, there's, there's a handful of these guys out here that are just incredibly sharp. And, uh, and you never, you can never count them out. I don't care if they haven't gone down the racetrack one time all weekend they're the kind of guy that can roll out there third round of qualifying with all the chips, you know, down and go straight to number one. Yeah, it's literally they'll they'll find that little it's like this little light bulb comes on and they just they take all that data and it's like almost like they have these like clear like, you know, like seeing sci fi movies, these like little touch screens and like they just make it all work. And they're <laughs> like, well, there it is. And then they that's you, right, man. They, they, they pound on the keyboard and then magic happens. That's right. Now, another thing that, kind of going off the technology bleed thing, I think you've seen some of that stuff from the pro mod world kind of come into radio tire racing. And one of the things that comes to mind is these multi-speed transmissions. Because you saw those a few yeah. years ago in, you know, someone like Melly Salemi's Pro Boost car. And then magically you start seeing them in these screw-blown radio cars that might not or you know, roots-blown cars that didn't maybe have these multi-speed transmissions. And now they've got the full Fast and the Furious 10, 10 gearbox going down the track. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, there, there's another, there's an interesting sort of uh, situation right there. And you can, you can almost kind of blame Salimi for that. You know, he shows up and, and uh, brings some of that flavor to the, to the radial game. And then um, other teams see the success that they have with it. And it, you know, Overnight, it seems like so many of the supercharged cars went to the Liberty uh, gearbox, which you know we're, we've all seen just how how important that is for them to be able to optimize uh, where the engine is in its RPM range. You know, just fantastic uh, sort of bleed over of technology from one to the other. Um, but but again, you know that was something that I think that John had had a radial car running. Um, when they were doing that as well, and I think that it was sort of uh, something that worked together. You know, I think he learned from one and then the other. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if it was really a one-way street there. No, in that GTO, you know. And I think that that again, that's what makes you know, from someone that's a drag racing nerd, it makes it so interesting is watching how people will take something and kind of you know they'll look at it for a while and be like, I wonder how I can make this work. And then you plug it in and you start playing with everything else. And, you know, at first people laugh at you for something that you're doing. Look at, like, what Ryan Miller can do with that diesel car. Everybody thought that thing was yeah. the biggest joke on earth. And then it wasn't. It was funny watching right. that kind of happen. Exactly. Yep. And we were fortunate enough to kind of have have a front row seat to that. You know, um, John Mellon here in my shop uh, worked extensively with those guys with that car and i mean it dude that thing was an absolute animal it was a handful to figure out how to run that car and i you know i i shudder to think at the amount of hours and all the time that they have involved in trying to do something that basically nobody else had done um and being told the whole time you can't do that it won't work and that is the last thing you want to say to someone like Ryan. The last thing, because he's yeah. like, oh, yeah, watch this. What about uh, Bobby Doodrell, you know, with the four-wheel drive truck? I mean, you know, that guy's been at it for years, 
and he came to our shop and we worked on a truck and I had a great conversation with him and he said everybody has told me to make it two wheel drive and go out and run fast but that's not what I want to do I'm not doing this for uh, just to go fast I'm doing it because I want to say that I've done something nobody else had was able to do and then he finally you know, ran a three second pass with that thing and it's just it's mind-boggling when you think about the amount of moving parts and the stuff that's going on there and to get it to go that daggone fast. And it couldn't happen to a better person because you talk to Bobby. He is the nicest dude on earth. He is just, he's have even when he's not having, when he's having problems at the track, he's still there. He's like you said, he's just, he's a tinkerer. You look at him and you're like, he just has that look, you know, with the work shirt, the pens in the pocket. He's that old school mechanic guy. That's like, I'm going to figure this out come hell or high water. He's, he is the, the, he's the embodiment of what our sport uh, originally started out as, you know, what, there weren't multi-million dollar teams in the beginning. These were guys who came home from world war two and needed an adrenaline fix and started building hot rods. Yeah. And I, I think that we should never forget that that's how this all started. The guy that's building his own car in his garage, um, you know, he is is just as important, if not more important, than a, a top fuel team up in Brownsburg. You know, God bless them; they have a, a an important role to play in our sport as well. But there's the guys that are doing it at home that are working a nine to five and spending their hard earned money doing this um, and cutting it close every month on paying their bills so they can have a little bit of money to go race on. Like that's that's the embodiment of what drag racing was was all about, and should we should never forget that. Oh, one hundred and ten percent, and that's why I love like I love telling people stories that I find like that online. You know, love it or hate it, Facebook's been a great tool, at least for me personally, to find people to tell their stories because you'll get guys that they might not internet very well, but their grandson might. And they'll post this picture up of this car that they're building. And then they just, they light up when I get to tell their story. And to them, that's the equivalent of being in, you know, in Hot Rod Magazine. Is someone just gave them an ounce of attention that they so rightfully deserve. Because, again, it comes down to being able to do that at home. And I think it's our job in the industry as a whole to encourage everybody to build, to do stuff like that. End of discussion. Yeah, I agree 100%. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of like it, it harkened, you know, you, you talked about dirt track racing earlier, and I am not, I'm not a closet dirt track fan. I am out in the open. Like, I am more than happy to get dirt in my beer at a dirt track because those guys, again, don't let the big money rigs fool you. Those dudes work their tails off to make those cars go fast just to get to the track to completely destroy their junk and keep racing. Well, I'm dude, I did it. And that's, that's where I learned. That's where I learned to race. That's where I learned to build shocks. Um, that's the background that I came from. And I, you know, I remember doing Ray cook series during the summer and, you know, doing 10, 11 races in a row and like washing the cars and car washes and rebuilding them and beating panels out in the, walmart parking lot or something you know like it's it's a tough lifestyle we talk about that gypsy lifestyle again that's that's a lot of what it is you know oh it's um but but the, it's that's that's what this whole thing with auto sports you know motorsports i remember reading like the peers courage's uh biography you know um the formula one driver and you know back in the 60s and them guys hauling the, the cars around on these trolley things um, and, and literally pulling over on the side of the road and sleeping up underneath the car uh, to keep the dew off of them on the way to the racetrack and, like, camping out. And that was Formula One in the 60s, you know, the premier motorsport in all of the world today. Um, those guys, you know, they go everywhere in a private plane and they have assistants to pamper them and powder their faces before they go on TV. And back in the 60s, they, you know, they were sleeping underneath the car. Yeah, it's crazy to think about, isn't it? Well, that's where we've come. Well, what's even and again, it, it harkens back to you know you look at different teams and 
money does not equate success in drag racing. It sure as the hell helps, but you get someone like, I'm going to use Marty Stinton as an example. Marty just, that dude works his tail off, is super humble, uses every dollar that he has with his operation to its max, and just, he loves every second of it. He doesn't, you know, worry about, you know, what his, you know, the, 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 I guess the persona of what his operation has, he's just worried about what that hot rod's going to do on the next pass. And how do I make it faster? That's it. Yeah. Stennett, Stennett has been a, a real inspiration. Um, and, and like a, a cornerstone figure of small tire drag racing for years and years, man, that guy is just, you're right. He's one of the, the most humble and nicest people you'll ever meet. Um, and he just goes out there and he lays it on the line every time he goes down the racetrack. You can tell that there's like there's nobody holding back. They're not laying up. They're putting it all out there. And it's not about you know a million dollar rig and a huge uh, giant pit space and and all that sort of stuff. I mean you know he pulls his stuff to the racetrack, unloads out of a a, a trailer and goes and races. And that's you know again there's a whole lot more of that type of guy out there then there are guys pulling in with a tractor trailer. I'll tell you what, you know, I 2020's been crazy. I'm not scared yet until I see a point where Ma- Marty is not smiling. I have seen that dude smiling <laughs> with that car in a million pieces in his pit space and he's just like, "Well, hey, we're we're going to get back at it." Just smiling, you know, they're wrenching and I'm like, "Dude, your shit's done blowing up everywhere." And he's just, "Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out." And just goes back to work. Yep. That's that's what you need to see right there. That's what I love to see. That's what our sport needs more of that. Our sport needs more of us. You know, I, I always joke about um, when I first got involved in radio racing years ago when it was just a bunch of us hillbillies and dummies in our garage doing this stuff. And there was there were no famous people radio racing. It was a bunch of unknowns, um, nobodies. Uh, but... But if somebody made a fast pass, it didn't matter who that guy was, man. The, the whole, our whole community was running around high five, and we were just thrilled to see somebody go fast on little tires. You know, it was it was a big, giant like, like a frat party. I mean, we were just having a good time at the racetrack, and we were happy to see somebody be successful. And and I don't think that that's completely gone. But with the money and with the larger teams and with the bigger purses and with the notoriety and the fame and all these other things, we've lost a lot of that. And I think that it's a shame. Um, I think it's it's just it's it's kind of sad, you know, that that the events have come to what they are now. Um, and you know, you have the bickering behind the scenes and the the cutthroat mentality about the rules and the weight breaks and. Um, you know, people are so willing to criticize one another so quickly. I mean, we used to just go to the racetrack and have fun, and we were all, we were happy to be there. And if you could get a personal best out of your combination, he didn't have to go, you know, make your case and plead your case to duck to change the rules so that your your combination now got a, a late break so that you could be the, you know, the the premier combination in the class. You're just damn happy that you ran up front with what you got. You know, I could not agree with that more. And, you know, to me, it, it really comes back down to, I guess maybe it's how I was raised and what I did. You know, I, I wrestled growing up. And, yep. you know, you, you put in what you get out of it. You work hard and you, you know, you get, you, you have to, you know, it's just, it's that mentality of I've got to work hard to get what I want to do. And I can't wrap my mind around the mentality of I'm going to cry about something to try to get an advantage. No, go lift weights to get better and faster. Go figure out how to make your program better. Rules makers, if like things are way out of whack, rules makers will find a way to get it right. It might not be immediately, but it's not an easy task because, again, you don't know who's laying up and what's happening. You only can go off the data that you have. And I think that's what I love about the way Pooch and Tyler handle LDR. People cry to them all the time about changing rules and they're like, prove it. Well, blah, blah, they just, that's their response. Prove it. And then people go out and prove it and they fix it. That's how it should be. I I agree. You know, and that's, that's the whole thing. Um, 
it's so much in racing as it is in life. You know, give give somebody an equal opportunity to be successful, but but that doesn't mean that we can make everything equal all the time. There's going to be days uh, where the conditions favor one combination over the other. There are racetrack conditions that favor one combination over the other. That's the reality of life. You know, the cookie's not always going to crumble your way. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we lost our way on that. Um, and a lot of that, dude, that comes back to the massive investment that some some of these programs have in them now. I mean, as the purses went up and, and things became faster and quicker, the amount of money that it takes to do it gets bigger. And the more money you have invested, the more likely you are to get pretty sour if you feel like the rules went away that that um, that makes your combination you know not viable in the class anymore. So um, and and you know not that all rule makers always get it right either. They do dumb stuff just as much as racers do. So it's not you know that's definitely a two way street. It's not a one way deal. Oh yeah, and you know it gets in the situation and you see it on a personal level like you know I'm building a turbo street car and. There's my car does not fit any particular class perfectly where I'm going to be the top dog. But guess what? I'm going to go into a class where I'm going to be close enough. I'm going to puff my chest up. I'm going to put the big boy tune up in it. And you can be damn sure I'm going to swing at whoever's in the next lane. They better be ready because I'm going to do what I got to do to win within the rules. You know, is I know I'm not going to be the fastest, but by God, I'm going to try. And when I get the money to go faster, guess what? I'm going to do it. That's what you need to do. Well, I mean, you think about uh, the way that things have kind of worked out um, in the landscape of of all of, of drag racing. Now, we, you know, we went through this period of time where it was well, nitrous. Uh, nitrous is just antiquated and it can't keep up. And turbo cars and supercharged cars and all the boosted applications are just going to run away from it, hands down, in nitrous. Uh, nitrous will never be competitive. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years of these 959s and people getting smarter about them, and then you see a guy like Marcus Burke come out and run mid-50s in radial versus the world trim with a nitrous car. You got Hancock out there running high 50s, low 60s. Um, uh, you got guys like Tommy Franklin and Jimmy Halsey who routinely go to PDRA. And not only... Um, you know, they're low ET for the entire event. They're faster than all the boosted cars uh, on the property because of the rule set that they have in Pro Boost, you know, where they limit the overdrive on the on that stuff and, and all their other weights and things that they do with the supercharged combinations. The nitrous cars routinely go to the racetrack and end up being the fastest thing on the property. And they um, do it like so, bracket cars. That's what's scary. Yes. Yes, they do. Um, and that's what's, you know... There's a combination that just a few years ago, you count that out. It's toast. It's over. Uh, nitrous is going to go the way of the dinosaur. And then all of a sudden, well, here it is. And, and not only is it here, it's pissed off and it came to play. You know, I use the Bruder brothers as an example there. You know, those guys, they've caused John Sears probably the majority of his gray hairs when it comes to making rules. Because those guys look <laughs> at a rule book and they're like, huh, well, would you look at that? And they find a way to expose it. Meantime, you know, the power adder company's going, oh, great, here we go. They're about to make this go fast and we're going to take a hit. And they figure it out. And I keep telling people, you're going to mess around. And the Bruder Brothers, their ultimate plan, I think, is to build a nitrous car. They've been doing this for years to set up to have a nitrous car built so they could come out in X and just destroy everybody. And it's going to be funny. I really think that's what's going to happen. The thing about those kids, man, I'm telling you, like, if John wrote a rule that you could have two hamsters on a wheel and it got a weight break and they figured out how to get the car light enough, they have the two baddest hamsters in the world and they go out there and they'd win with it. And I don't care what you do to them. They just, it's their work ethic. It's, it, they work hard and you can't, there's, there's no amount of money or anything that's going to, that's going to defeat a guy that is willing to lay in the floor of the trailer in the front yard at his house, changing transmissions um, and putting different converters in so they can go test the thing. 
I don't, I don't care what you do. You're not going to defeat that. Dude, look yeah, at- from, from race to race, you might beat them here and there. But in the long run, those guys are going to come out on top. They've, they've been doing it for years, and I don't see any reason that that's going to change. Dude, look at Ron Rhodes. People wrote him yeah. off that, oh, they, you know, Ron's just done. He's done. And Ron just constantly grinds and works and works with smart companies like BES. And then he switches to yep. EFI, and it's like, oh, well, look. Look what he's doing now. And he's just starting to – if this would have been a normal year, he would have absolutely already been smashing people even more. And I think he's going to be someone that if he goes to the Sweet 16, people are going to mess around and find out real quick that he's got that figured out. Right. And and Ron's a great example, too, because, there again, he's a guy that races his combination. He's not worried about – what somebody else is doing, he doesn't care. You know, it's it's just not his priority. His priority is his car, and trying to make get the most that he can out of of what he's got there. And oh. so, you know, that's a great lesson that a lot of people could kind of look to that and and uh, and find some inspiration there. That hey, you don't have to have the latest, greatest, whoopie do whatever the new fad is this week. Your combination might not be the hot ticket, but it doesn't mean that you can't that you can't be successful with it. You just have to be a little creative, and you got to work with what you got. Oh, you could show up with a flux capacitor in the next lane, and he'd look at you and be like, "That's cute, Kim. Turn on the bottle so we could smash this guy." That's exactly right. how that conversation would go. End of discussion. Right, and that's and that's what again. Like I think what our conversation has turned into is like all the things that make drag racing cool and all of the, the values that we should be trying to like protect and preserve in our sport. Yeah. And you see that to a point and it's like anything, it comes in ebbs and flows. And I think it's going to be interesting. I think this pandemic is going to have, we're, we're only seeing, I think the front edge of it. I think on the back edge, you're going to see a big reset with people not being able to spend the money that they had. There's going to be a lot of changes, and I think you're going to see all the little people that are really good at squirrely stuff are going to come out of that woodwork, and it's just it's going to be a reset, I think. Could be wrong. Who knows? But I think that's what we're going to see. And you're already, you know, the, the, the canary in the coal mine is the NHRA because they got their own sets of issues right now with money and everything else, and I think you're going to yep. see that trickle down to all forms of drag racing. Well, if I've learned anything from 2020 so far, it's that you can't predict what's going to happen. So the best thing that we can all do is uh, try to make decisions with the best interest of our sport and our friends and our families in mind. Be uh, be advocates for our sport um, and and try to preserve it the best that we can because none of us has any idea what the heck's going to happen tomorrow. I'm waiting for like Godzilla or aliens or I, I don't know. Oh, I mean, dude, I've Ryan got pigs. Who the hell knows, dude? I have got aliens on my 2020 bingo card. Like that is 100 percent on my 2020 bingo card. Like murder hordents, I didn't have on there. You know, all this other stuff. But dude, aliens are 100 percent on my bingo card, and I think they're just gonna show up and be like, "Y'all are a mess. We're gonna go back to wherever we came from," and they're just gonna they're gonna peace out. I dig that meme about the Bermuda Triangle starting to move around like a giant Roomba and just sucking up vast swaths of the country. Yeah, or the or you know maybe the Bermuda Triangle is just going to start randomly vomiting things back out into into play. You know, you know, you just you never know what's going to show up. <laughs> An entire squadron of World War II aircraft suddenly appears. You know, honestly, <laughs> who knows, man? One hundred percent, I could wake up and see that in my Facebook newsfeed and be like. Well, it's not the worst thing that could have happened today and just go about my day. Right. You know? Exactly. It could have been worse. Right? <laughs> could have could have been a whole lot worse. At least, you know, you know, it doesn't say anything about Polly Shore making a big comeback or, you know, anything like that. You know, there's just there's a lot worse things that could happen in life. I'll tell you something else that twenty twenty taught me though. Um even though the schedules have been goofy, uh some of the races have had no fans. Some of the races have had uh, very limited capacity for spectators. One thing that I, that I believe in my heart is like when I go to the racetrack um, and I, I go through the gate and I get my wristband, I walk in there and it's like when you're within the confines of that property, it's like 
there's a calm and a sanity there that that's not on the other side of the fence out there in the rest of the world. Like the whole world's gone crazy, but you get to the racetrack and it's just like business as usual. It's, it's normalcy. Um, sanity prevails. And, and, um, then that's something like, dude, that's been really, I've been extremely thankful for the racing that I've been able to do this year, even though it's been limited because it is a great escape from the craziness of everything else that's going on in the world, you know? Oh, totally. I went, I went last Friday night to support some of my friends at National Trail Raceway, and it was just, you know, it was literally business as usual. It's like, all right, you know, let's let's do some race car stuff. And everything else, I always tell people why I love the racetrack is because the rest of the world melts away. When I roll through those gates, there could literally be Godzilla roaming around outside. As long as he doesn't mess up the track prep, I could care less what Godzilla's doing. Exactly. Yep, 100%, man. Well, Mark, our time here on the uh, the podcast is coming to an end, and I like to give my guests their uh, opportunity to do their best impersonation of John Force, plugging everything where they can be found on social media and everything else. And uh, I'd like to turn the floor over to you so you can tell people where they can uh, find you guys on social media and what you're all about and uh, what's going on. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Um, we're Mincer Motorsports, facebook.com forward slash the shock nerd. You can look us up on the web at mincermotorsports.com. We're on Instagram at mincermotorsports, all one word. Um, and if you've got any questions, if you'd like some help with your uh, your racing program, if you feel like we may be able to assist you in any way, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, we'll be more than happy to give you, give you a hand with your program. Appreciate you coming on the show, Mark, and uh, we'll see you soon. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, that wraps up the show for this week. Thanks for Mark for stopping by. And as always, may your reaction times be crisp and your wind lights bright. Until next time, folks.